Hello, uh, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. In this episode, I'll be looking at In the Vault. In the Vault was a short story. Um, it is a short story uh, written by Lovecraft in 1925. It would, uh, I think it was the last story that Lovecraft sent uh, to an amateur journal. Um, it would be published in one in an amateur journal in 1926. Um, usually by this point in his career, he was writing for Weird Tales. He published some stories in other places, usually when Weird Tales would would turn it down. Like Cool Air, we just looked at a story like that that was turned down initially by Weird Tales. But this one was sent to uh, the amateur journal Tryout, where it was, was published in 1925. So... Um, this story, um, I should note, I've been working off the, the Leslie Klinger anthologies, as you probably know, uh, for most of Lovecraft stories. Um, there's two of them. One has the major um, stories, the big, most well-known, most famous stories published usually in the last decade, decade of his life. Um, it, uh, then they they published a second anthology, which has a lot of earlier work and Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath uh, and a few things that weren't included in that big, thick anthology. Um, but there are still some stories missing, right? So for that, I've gone to a public domain omnibus, the H.P. Lovecraft Complete Fiction Omnibus. That's also, by the way, where I'm getting the text for the revisions, which, which I'm looking at as well as the stories that he wrote himself. Um, in the Vault is in that that omnibus um, because it wasn't included in either of the Klinger anthologies and I don't know why it is a horror story technically um, maybe because it's a bit more like a joke it's it does kind of strike us maybe as more of a joke it's it's a funnier tale it I mean it's it's gruesome that's uh it is gruesome but I mean I, I think it fits with Lovecraft's other stories it doesn't have a lot of the themes we've been talking about um, but in fact, the editors of this omnibus say, uh, in the vault, he, they compare it to the other two stories he wrote in 25, he and the horror at Red Hook. It says it is far from Lovecraft's best work, but it lacks the poison air of depression and hostility that taints he and all but ruins the horror at Red Hook. I, I think, you know, my opinion on this side of it, I don't think horror at Red Hook is ruined by his overt racism. I think... I think in many ways it, it's central to his whole philosophy. And I guess if you're, I can see why people would read that story and be offended, <laughs> I guess. But I don't think it ruins it. I think if, I think this is Lovecraft's, part, partially this is Lovecraft's message to us is this, this argument about civilization. And, you know, I reject it. I think many readers of Lovecraft reject it, but I think it's something that's got to be taken square face on and accepted. That's simply who Lovecraft was. 
So in that sense, I think Horror at Red Hook is one of the most Lovecraftian of, of, of the stories. Um, but I guess... I guess that's what it is. Um, but that's true. In the Vault doesn't have those ass elements. It also doesn't have elements of vernacular knowledge. It doesn't have networks. Uh, it doesn't have uh, the, the rhyme zones of interconnected, uh, the hydra or whatever kind of metaphor you want to use for talking about this, this subsurface uh, interconnection of, of knowledge. It doesn't have that aspect. It's just a straight up cute little horror tale. Um, that that is kind of jokey, I guess. Um, I, I I find it kind of a funny story, anyways. Um, now the story begins kind of like Cold Air, where this idea is, where it's like, well, I'm going to tell you the story about how this person, you know, came to be uh, this this strange way that he is now. I mean, in Cold Air, it's the narrator saying this is how he came to hate the cold air. Here it's it's uh, how this guy Birch, um, George Birch, came to be the way he is. And it's talking about events that happened like 20 years earlier um, when George Birch ended his profession as a, an undertaker or as a, as a grave digger, uh, which is the career ended in 1881. So George Birch has just died. So the narrator saying, well, now I can tell the story of George Birch. It's been, that's kind of something I've known about him. It's been hovering in the background of his life. And now I can tell us this story. Um, and the other character we're introduced early on is Dr. Davis, who had died much earlier than this. So these are the two characters that are most important here. Mostly we spend it with, with George Birch. Um, but later on, we learn the role of the doctor in all this. Um, so we know that up until 1881, Birch had been the village undertaker in a small, well, in a village, in a place called, in the Peck Valley. And he was, we get a lot of the story about, much of the story is about his character and who he, who he is. And we realize that he's very, you know, he's a bit of an alcoholic. He's very aloof. He's very, He's very kind of dull in a way. And, and part of what the suggestion here is like this story will explain to you why he is he has become psychologically sensitive to to horror, I guess. And remember, this is around the time that Lovecraft is thinking about and writing supernatural horror and literature. And that's, of course, the theme there is is the psychologically sensitive types. Uh, George Birch, apparently before 1881, wasn't this sensitive type, but later on becomes that way. Um, in fact, he writes this when still talking about kind of his background. Another might not have relished the damp odorous chamber with the eight carelessly placed coffins, but Birch in those days was insensitive and was concerned only in getting the right coffin for the right grave. Um, so he, he was at that time insensitive. You wouldn't have worked that way unless the implication is later on in life he became the sensitive type. Um, we get a more straight-up description of his of his character earlier in the story, where the narrator writes, I still think he was not an evil man. He was merely crass of fiber and function, thoughtless, careless, and licorice, as his easily avoidable accident proves. And without that modicum of imagination, which holds the average citizen within certain limits fixed by taste. And obviously his career is partially suggested by that, right? If he lacked that 
limitation on taste, which would have limited his profession, right, to something that's not digging dead bodies or digging graves for dead bodies and preparing dead bodies. So his job consists of, of largely preparing the coffins for various people and, you know, for dealing with the dead and, and, and remove, and, and most important for this story, moving bodies from the receiving tomb, the receiving vault into underground in the spring. So before mechanical machines, before excavators that can dig in the winter, before we had the technology to do this, if you died in the wintertime, you, you, your coffin would be prepared. You'd have your, your funeral, but you'd be put in the receiving tomb um, with the other people who died that winter. And then when the ground thawed and the undertakers could dig graves for you, you, you'd have to stay there through the winter. So it's a pretty creepy place, right? And that's the vault that's referred to in the story, in the, in the vault. It's, uh, it's a receiving vault. Um, so now the undertaker, Birch, the winter's kind of a, it's described as a lethargic time for him. And he becomes more increasingly careless. Uh, quote, the undertaker grew doubly lethargic in the bitter winter and seemed to outdo himself even in carelessness. Never did he knack together flimsier or ungainlier caskets or disregard more flag flag flagrantly the need of the rusty lock on the tomb door, which he slammed open and shut with such nonchalant abandon. Now, his aloofness gets to him. Now, um, one thing that that really does him in is he wants to work on uh, on Good Friday, right? Uh, on Fridays. It's Friday the 15th, or Friday the 13th. Why, why couldn't it have been Friday the 13th? I don't know. Maybe the date. Maybe he looked up the actual date here. But, um, you know, he's working one day on Good, Good Friday. I guess here the ground is still too hard to to dig up so he's so, so these bodies are still in the receiving tomb um, so after all this background a good third of the story is just the background of george birch his character we get the the events of friday april 15th which um which doom him i guess he is he's going to be preparing to move the body of this one person matthew fenner so anyways, one other thing of background here is this uh, Daniel Birch, George, sorry, George Birch. He built, uh, he's, he was responsible for building the coffins for these people. And there was one guy called Asphat Sawyer who Birch hated and kind of the whole town hated. He was, he was kind of a nasty guy. Um, and there was another coffin for this uh, shorter man, Matthew Fenner. And... And this isn't really revealed to the end of the story, but uh, George Birch switched the bodies, um, giving giving uh, Asphalt Sawyer the much more inferior coffin, but much shorter coffin. He kind of fits, so he cut his legs and, and, and buried him with these cut-off legs, cut off at the ankle, um, and put Matthew Fenner in the better coffin used for Asphalt Sawyer. Um, but anyways... Uh, George Birch, aloof, not paying attention, goes into the vault. I guess he's to get this body of Matthew Fenner, but I'm not sure if it's the the coffin. I guess would have been this other you know, the other guys in that coffin. But um, there's another case talked about here where he switched bodies before. Um, 
he had, he had, he had done this before because they tried to dig up a body uh, for whatever reason, move it, I think to move it to a different place. And they found it, the, the person, a different person's body in, in the tomb. So this is part of George Birch's M.O. But anyways, um, he gets stuck there. He gets stuck in the vault because that latch he doesn't, and that lock he doesn't fix. It closed, the door closes and he gets stuck in the vault. And it starts to get late and he's kind of panicking. What can, what can he do? But there's a, there's a window kind of in the top. And, and to get there, he has to stack these coffins. So he ends up creating a, a stack of coffins and he puts that shorter um, coffin of, of Matthew Fenner, which has the body of, of Asphalt Sawyer in it, on the top. Because it's shorter, so he's kind of trying to make a pyramid. So he puts the shortest coffin on the top, and he was originally going to do like three coffins, two coffins, and then one coffin. But he realized because the Fenner coffin was shorter, you could have two, one, and one shorter one, and get the same height with less work. So he creates the the kind of revised pyramid of four coffin, four coffins, and he climbs up, but he gets his feet his feet break through the poorly made coffin that that he made. Um, and his legs get all cut up and he leaves. He's able to get out and, but his, he's got these damaged legs. Now his, his feet are ripped up. So he runs, escapes, finds no one's chasing him. And I was running like someone's chasing him. If you read his escape, it's like he's in a state of panic. Um, quote, instinct guided him with his wriggle through the transom. And in the crawl that followed his jarring thud on the damp ground, he could not walk, it appeared, and the emerging moon must have witnessed a horrible sight as he dragged his bleeding ankles towards the cemetery lodge, his fingers clawing the black mold in brainless haste, and his body responding to the banding slowness from which one suffers when chased by the phantoms of nightmare. There was evidently, however, no pursuer, for he was alone and alive when Armington, the lodgekeeper, answered his feeble clawing at the door. So, I mean, but first his feet kind of got stuck and he was able to tear them out. And it makes sense his feet would be cut up because they were in the coffin and it's wood, wood shards. Uh, and so that makes, that ex, that's on the surface explanation of why his feet are cut up. Um, but he ends up going to the doctor and this is where Dr. Davis reenters the story. And Dr. Davis looks at the wounds around his Achilles tendons and, and says, and starts thinking these wounds aren't right. They're not explained by any by what happened the explanation that he just kind of fell through a coffin the wounds don't quite fit and he's really curious about that and he starts to really ask all these um questions about how how this happened um you know would the fenner casket have caved so easily is one question but also just the nature of his wounds um and of course he's careful enough and aware enough to to maybe think something's up with these coffins too uh he asks um he was oddly anxious to know if birch were sure absolutely sure of the identity of the top top coffin of the pile how could he have chosen it how could he have been certain of it as the fender coffin in the dusk and how had he distinguished it from the inferior duplicate coffin of the vicious asaf sawyer would the firm fender casket had caved in so readily Davis, an old-time village practitioner, had, of course, seen both the respective funerals, and indeed, he had attended both Fenner and Sawyer in their last illnesses. 
He had even wondered at Sawyer's funeral how the vindictive farmer had managed to lie straight in a box so closely akin to that of the diminutive Fenner. So he kind of was already thinking something was up with uh, Fenner, with Sawyer's coffin being a little too small, right? So both these coffins ended up being too short, but Fenner's a shorter man. But uh, So that was the coffin that Andrew got put on top, was the Sawyer one. And that's the one he broke through. That's the realization he had. So Dr. Davis eventually kind of investigates on his own and he goes to the receiving tomb and looks in. And so he's able to confirm that it's Asphet Sawyer in the cast-off coffin of Fenner uh, on the ground because when he left he kicked the coffin and it fell to the ground and he sees the cut legs and he sees all this and, and he laments like to George Birch like why did you do this why did you uh, why are you so vindictive why did you know sometimes you play games and things with the coffin but we went too far this time with the mutilation of the body because he the marks on his leg the mark on the marks on Birch's legs are actually bite marks they weren't just from the cutting of the coffin. They were clearly bite marks, and the doctor could tell that. So that's the story we have here. So, again, George Birch puts Asphat Sawyer in this kind of cast-off coffin that he originally made for George Fenner. He made him later on a better one, I guess. Put him in that one, but he didn't fit, so cut the ankles. Um, and then... And then this event, this, lock, this night of being locked in the coffin gave... Gave Asphad Sawyer a chance for revenge. He is a vindictive guy, after all. And that's he's described that way by everyone in the community. So, a uh, vindictive farmer. So, he's able to get his revenge by biting the ankles of, of George Birch. And this leads to George Birch giving up his life as an undertaker. So, that's all I'm going to say about the Lovecraft story. It's not thematically very rich, but it's a good story with a good effect. It's got an interesting kind of mystery there about which coffin was on the top of that pyramid he created and, and the nice little twist that's based on uh, George Birch's background and his character and his own kind of aloof and capricious uh, nature. Um, but I'm reminded of a, an episode of Tales from the Crypt here. Uh called Fitting Punishment. I think it was the very, very first season of, of Tales from the Crypt. And we have in that story a man who is a funeral home director who is kind of uh, a little bit too careful with money, if you will. But he ends up having to take in his nephew who's, whose parents died. He's like an orphan. Um, and he, he ends up crippling his nephew by beating him or something um so he finally uh kills this nephew just murders him but what but doesn't want to like use a cough doesn't want to pay for a coffin to put him into so he uses this old cast off coffin but it's too small for him so he eventually also cuts his legs um so they fit in the in the in the coffin and he buries him or whatever but Sometimes later, the ghost or the the zombie of this nephew comes back to to kill him. So it's you know like the tales from the crypt are always like these EC comic style uh, stories of, of vengeance. Um, this story kind of re reminded me of this tales from the crypt episode. Anyways, it has a very very similar plot. 
Uh, so if you want to check out that episode, it's it's interesting. It's fun to watch, like they, they tend to be. Um, but yeah, that's 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 it. That's um, all I really can think of saying about this particular story. So next time, um, I believe our next story will be uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, so I'm very looking, f- very much looking forward to talking with that with you. So please uh, join me next time when I'll talk about uh, at least the first part of Call of Cthulhu. I, I reckon that one will be a two-parter as well because there's a lot to say about it as we jump right back into deeply into the themes of Lovecraft in one of his most well-known most famous and most beloved stories, The Call of Cthulhu. So join me for that. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts about In the Vault, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.